At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about what to watch on TV at home. We'll speak with John Powers, critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. He recommends two series, The Good Fight and The Bureau, and one novel. But first, Mike Davis with our coronavirus update. Mike, of course, is best known for writing City of Quartz. He's got a new book that's come out last week, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm co-author on that one. He also wrote a book in 2005 on another virus, the avian flu. That one is called The Monster at Our Door. Recently, he's been writing a lot about the new virus, including several pieces for the nation. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, the virus news this week is about states reopening for business. Last week, Georgia and South Carolina reopened tattoo parlors, also nail salons and barber shops. And this week they opened movie theaters and restaurants. And Minnesota this week, my home state, also opened some industrial and manufacturing workplaces and some offices. Minnesota expects 100,000 people to be back at their workplaces this week, sort of the opposite of Georgia and South Carolina. That is, Minnesota has a plan based on at least some science. The new rules in Minnesota are pretty straightforward. If you can work at home, you should stay there. If your work requires being on site and there are no face-to-face activities, that means No tattoo parlors, no nail salons, no movie theaters, no restaurants. And your your employer is able to provide masks and gloves and indeed is required to provide masks. And your employer can make sure there is six feet of social distancing. And the employer can also guarantee facility cleaning and the disinfecting necessary to keep workers safe. Then... People can go back to work. Employers must also do health screening of employees, ensure that sick employees stay home. Plus, Minnesota has announced a huge increase in testing organized by the Mayo Clinic and a huge increase in mask production by 3M, which, of course, is based in Minnesota. And, of course, if the virus becomes significantly bigger and more widespread, Minnesota will go back to greater restrictions and people like you and me who are old or immune compromised are advised to stay home the way they have been doing for a long time to come. The main strategist here is a guy named Dr. Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. I know you've written about his earlier work on the avian flu. He reminds us that the point of flattening the curve was not to keep everybody from getting the virus 
It was to spread out the infection rate over time so that hospitals would not be overwhelmed. I know you've looked at Osterholm's analysis of COVID-19. What exactly is it and what do you think of it? Well, the Minnesota plan is very well designed and thought out. And Osterholm, who's been receiving daily death threats from people who just want to total go back to uh, work without any of these controls is, of course, a, uh, a world authority. He points out in one of his interviews that he expects this infection eventually to encompass 50, 60, perhaps even 70 percent of the American population. And of people who are infected, he says up to 16 million people will be admitted to hospitals or require hospital care. So we need to keep keep this fact in the front of our minds. He also joins with other experts in saying that we're talking about 18-month period here, not three months, not until the beginning of next year, but that the pandemic will probably run its course over 18 months. Now, the problem with the Minnesota plan, well, the first problem is whether it will be implemented as designed, given the pressure, say, if 100,000 people go back and it seems to work, there could be growing pressure to reopen more and more of the economy, where the essence of the design is this idea, it's like a thermostat. If if uh, number of infections reappear, then you don't let so many people uh, uh, return to work. But the other problem is simply this. If you look at the Minnesota statistics, almost two-thirds of the deaths have been occurring in nursing homes. And there's, as of yesterday, 111 nursing homes in Minnesota that report infections. And nursing homes across the country, of course, have turned into mortuaries. 12,000 dead, but that is not a real number because there's so many unreported and the numbers aren't increasing every day. So one of the most, I would call it almost criminal acts in response to the pandemic by the Trump administration and part of this whole Darwinian, I'm not responsible, let the states do it, attitude is there's been no federal effort focused on nursing homes. When you've known from the beginning, from the first outbreak in Kirkland, Washington, in a nursing home, that a conflagration was almost uh, inevitable. But there's another problem, and this is is something that the plan doesn't take into account. In fact, I've had difficulty finding anybody talking about this, which is most of us in our age group don't live in nursing homes or by ourselves. We live in multi-generational families. And the problem is that people going back to work, of course, can bring those infections back home. People who've tested positive on the antibody test for having had the disease can get it again. Also, home and others predict that this fall, there'll be a second wave of infections and possibly a lot of people will get reinfected because as the World Health Organization recognized last week, 
that there's no guarantee at all that this immunity is anything more than, than temporary. Basically, that whole question is still open. So what this country desperately needs is a focused approach on, first of all, people in the workforce who might be going back to work, but go back to work with comorbidities, with pre-existing conditions, heart condition, respiratory condition, diabetes, and so on. But secondly, on this whole problem of how people in multi-generational working class homes manage the relationship between family members needing to work and older people who have to be protected. And in our case, John, I'm afraid this may be almost forever is the way things are going. Well, of course, we're talking about the United States, Europe, you know, Japan, the the developed world. You have said very memorably that in terms of immunity to viruses like COVID-19, there are two different humanities. Explain what you mean. Well, in Western Europe, the United States, in fact, in the OECD countries as a whole, maybe a quarter of the population because of age or existing health problems would be considered in in a high-risk group. That is, they have some degree of compromised immune systems. In Africa and in the global south, a majority of people may have compromised immune systems because of malnutrition, other diseases like HIV. There's still 24 million people in Africa that are trying to survive with HIV. Uh, There's a rampant tuberculosis epidemic. And sanitation is something that's hardly been mentioned. Is there actually two ways to spread this? The respiratory route, but it's also possible to transmitted, at least this is the general belief. And this is true of almost any viral infection, uh, a fecal-oral route. And in slums and in poor countries where you have fecal-contaminated environments, where sewage runs in ditches and during wet seasons rises up and floods people's homes and so on, this raises the risk that the second route of infection could become more, you know, more common. So there are two immunologically different humanities. And the fear is that we might be seeing right now in places like Gaza, Kibera, the million-person uh, slum of Nairobi or in Dharavi and in Mumbai, we may be seeing a second kind of pandemic. And that pandemic may not follow the same course as the one going on in this country right now, in that our pandemic has had very few deaths among people under 50 unless they were already compromised. But that could change. The demographics of it could change when so many people are hungry, don't have proper sanitation, and to an astonishing extent, don't even have clean water and soap to wash their hands in. And certainly in slums, can't follow social distancing. What's going to happen to people in the, in the global south? Trump is certainly not going to do anything to help them. His promise is to keep them 
out of the United States. Europe is not doing much better, but there are a few countries that have rushed to help the wretched of the earth. Tell us about them. I mean, on Trump's side, America first means Africa last, or the poor world last. Now, the World Health Organization is supposed to coordinate a global effort with particular attention to countries that are most vulnerable or lack developed healthcare systems. But the World Health Organization has become totally marginalized. It has regulations accepted by all the countries that belong to it on how to respond to the pandemic. No country, and I mean this, absolutely no country fulfilled the role they were they were supposed to. They turned inward the response almost everywhere has been a nationalistic ones. Even countries that are bound together in the European Union close their borders and refuse to help each other, raising doubts about its future. The country that always is on the scene and whose doctors have the greatest experience in the world with diseases like Ebola and now with coronavirus are the Cuban medical teams active now, I believe, in about 18 countries, ranging from Haiti and Angola to, believe it or not, Andorra. Andorra is this tiny little postage stamp country in the Andes, I'm sorry, in the Pyrenees, that's supposedly administered by Spain and France. Both of them totally forgot about Andorra. And so there's a serious outbreak there. Cubans sent doctors to Andorra. And so Cuban doctors for many years have been heroes not only in the Western Hemisphere, the Caribbean, but throughout the world. Norway, which is the Scandinavian country least affected by the recent wave of chauvinism and xenophobia in Scandinavia, almost immediately started trying to put in motion a rescue medical mission to African countries, which not only involves medical aid, but equally or even more important, and involves a moratorium on debts because so many African countries pay more to service their debts to American German banks than they are able to expend on health care. There are other little countries that have taken important uh, steps. When Trump cut off American funding to the World Health Organization, which is an absolutely crippling blow to an organization that, even though it's marginalized in terms of coordination, still has several thousand absolutely essential people in the field. When Trump cut out all that, Ireland immediately quadrupled its contribution. Portugal giving aid to uh, ex-Portuguese colonies. But at the end of the day, there's only one power, one large country, that has the the resources, the experience, and the willingness to be a really significant factor on the ground, and that's, of course, China. When all the EU countries turned down Italy's request for aid, within two weeks, there was a Chinese plane on the ground, doctors getting off, and huge pallets to medical supplies all marked, you know, from the people of China. 10, 20 years ago, those pallets would have said to the people of Italy from the people of the United States, but no more. So China is playing an absolutely essential role. The problem is, just as with American aid and during the Cold War and after, 
Chinese AIDS not without not without a catch to it, and you're generally expected to sing songs in praise of General Secretary President uh, Xi when you get it. A lot of resentment against China and some of the countries that have become bound to it economically over the last number of years. But the fact remains that only China is sending aid on a scale that makes a difference. And I think a lot of ordinary people around the world, they don't care where the AIDS comes from, but they will read the sign on the side of the, uh, the boxes. So China sees this as a huge opportunity to acquire something it's locked in before. It has plenty of hard economic power. But this gives them an opportunity to cultivate soft power and moral prestige in the world. There's the virus, and then there's the economic collapse. China was the first to recover from the virus economically. Lots of experts predict that China will also be the engine behind the economic recovery, not only of Asia, but also of Europe and of the United States. Trump, on the other hand, needs an enemy and has decided it should be China. He may run his re-election campaign on a China-bashing platform, promising that in the new economy that will come out of the current collapse, Chinese production for American consumers will be replaced by American production for American consumers. Do you agree that uh, domestic manufacturing employment will be reborn in a world where China has been eclipsed economically? This is Trump's version of a Pacific cargo cult. You know, where you go ahead and build the, uh, the runway and, and then you wait for the white gods to return with their planes and, and their goodies. Well, this isn't going to happen that way because as capital is repatriated to the extent that it is from China, but also from the uh, Southeast Asian periphery, where China has now exported most of its low-wage jobs to Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. If that capital is repatriated, you're not going to repatriate the jobs that were lost because the factories that are set up in the United States are most likely to be automated. There's a wide agreement amongst uh, economists about that. Secondly, those jobs may go to Mexico, all power to Mexico, rather than back to uh, Youngstown or, you know, or Battle Creek. So this is something of a, of a fantasy. But the real, I, I think, even bigger problem here is that in 2008, China adopted this massive stimulus package, basically investments in infrastructure, the beginning of the Belt and Road program, unifying, creating an infrastructure for the unification of Eurasia. But China's never recovered from 2008. It has the biggest debt bubble in the world. Its infrastructure investments have misallocated massive amounts of national saving, a lot of them terribly managed. So it's very unlikely that China, and China also faced with a diminishing demand in, in, in the world market as the recession continues, can be the engine that pulls the rest of the world out of the recession. So where is the engine that will do that? This country, very unlikely. Europe, almost certainly not at all. So you're faced with something that we really haven't seen since 
the 1930s, which is a synchronous global depression. In past depressions, there's always been some country or group of countries that wasn't affected and can play the role of the economic uh, stimulant. In this case, it's hard to see what that would be. And that's a very dire environment for the post-pandemic world. Last question. Let's talk about the left in America today in relation to the coronavirus. Millions of young people now call themselves socialists for the first time in a century. And the public health disaster that's going on right now has made clear to pretty much everybody the need for Medicare for all or something like it. And that indeed has been at the center of the Bernie uh, campaign uh, going back now for four years. So that is certainly the number one strength of the left today, that it's been on top of the issue that's now at the forefront of all Americans uh, thinking. What do you see as the biggest weakness or, or failing of the left in America today? The biggest weakness in my mind is the lack of a consistent to high priority internationalism that focuses on the global south that focuses on the rest of the Western Hemisphere, that understands that we're living not just through a pandemic, but in an age of pandemics, so that universal coverage, Medicare for all, should be our foreign policy as well. And that we need to revive a a tradition that's weakened and almost disappeared from the scene on an international level. And that's the idea of social medicine, that what you really need to treat are the conditions of poverty and inequality that are, in fact, the primary disease environment, where the approach pioneered by the Rockefellers before the Second World War and continued by the World Health Organization is to focus on cures for specific disease. We need to get back to an understanding of how diseases are transmitted and why people die from diseases. Why almost a million children a year die from contaminated water, for example. But the left needs to recover its sense of internationalism. And right now, in terms of the pandemic, I think it means two things. First of all, supporting emergency aid and debt relief for Africa, and also uh, realizing that places refugee camps in Gaza are slaughterhouses waiting to happen. But the second thing is, as vaccines come online, cross our fingers that they will, the basic principle within the World Health Organization has been, always been, although it hasn't always been practiced, equality of access. I mean, what will happen in the United States, of course, is that the administration will insist that all this be hoarded just for Americans. And similarly, in in Western Europe, and we have to staunchly oppose that. We have to make sure that there's equal access to the vaccine based on on the principle of highest, highest need. This is something we need to be thinking about right now. Mike Davis. He's written about COVID-19 lately for many publications, including The Nation. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure, John.
Now it's time to talk about TV in the age of the virus. News you can use from the Nation Magazine podcast, Start Making Sense. For today's top picks, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. And he was a longtime film critic for Vogue and before that for the L.A. Weekly. John, welcome back. I'm happy to be here. Well, there's a new season of one of my favorite shows, and the first episode is fabulous. I'm talking about The Good Fight. It's on something called CBS All Access. It's about life in a Chicago law firm, sort of, and it it stars Christine Baranski, Delroy Lindo, and a wonderful woman I didn't know before, Kush Jumbo. Is that how you pronounce her name? Before we talk about the new season, let's talk about where this show came from. It's it's a sequel of sorts to The Good Wife, which was a long-running lawyer show on regular network TV. Yes, I mean, and that was, in fact, a show that I didn't watch. Everybody I knew watched it, but somehow I didn't. Maybe because in my job, I, I came to it late and was so many episodes behind that I realized I could never catch up to review it. My, my, my producer at Fresh Air, who loved the show, once wanted me to do it. And I realized that I had 190 hours to catch up on <laughs> before I could do it. And I, I told her I couldn't do that. But in fact, this is the, I guess, the spinoff from it. And what's especially interesting about it is that in the move from network to CBS All Access, the show got vastly more daring. And went from from being a very solid network show, I mean, I mean an excellent next network show, to being maybe the the most interesting show about the Trump era on any available server. We're now at the beginning of season four, the first episode. Let's set the scene here, Bader. The first episode of season one opens as our hero, played by Christine Baranski, a powerful middle-aged woman attorney, is alone in her living room watching Donald Trump's inaugural address on TV. And seeing it, I have to say, is almost unbearable for us and for her, too. And she promptly decides that to retire and move to France, where she has enough money to buy a beautiful house in Provence, But then the plot unfolds that she has lost all the money she got because of a Madoff-like investment advisor. And that is all of season one is occupied with the Madoff story. Many things happen at the firm, and that takes us to the new season, season four. The opening here recalls the opening of season one. Yes. And in the new season, what happens is basically she's watching except the thing is that she realizes that Trump's winning has been a bad dream. That in fact, that Hillary Clinton won the election and that this incredibly vivid thing that seemed to have gone on for years, in fact, wasn't real. It was the the nightmare that she thought it was. And she goes into the office where she's asking people, so who's president? And they're all saying, Hillary Clinton, of course. And she says, how long? And they say, three years. And in fact, she's now entering the world, which what she thinks is the happy world that she wanted in the first place, because she was a Hillary lover and supporter, of Hillary Clinton being president, and everything is going to be good. You know, this this is the happy result. You didn't get Trump. You got Hillary Clinton. But then she goes to a meeting of the partners who we 
know well from the last three years, and they're all talking about the scandals. Can you believe Benghazi is still, you know, going and she got a $500 haircut? Who gets a $500 haircut? This is an outrage. It's a great it's a great joke that, you know, that, that in fact, even if she'd won, you still get the same things you've been hearing forever, you know, because the Hillary story is always the same story. Yes. They're, they're, well, they're talking about the scandals and they're talking about needing money. Because in, in fact, their, their law firm is in a little bit of trouble because of the, of the tax increases that Hillary had put through had damaged some of their clients who, who then were, do, were doing things. So that in fact, they were, fa- they were facing economic hardship. And then, and in what is, what is I think the great touch is that she starts realizing that if Hillary had won all sorts of things she cares about, in, in fact, aren't working most particularly the Me Too thing, where because a woman has taken power, the official story basically in the culture that the Hillary people want is that everything is swell because, in fact, we have a woman president and now and things have worked out for women. So that the Me Too thing is an inconvenience and it gets even worse than that. Should we say more, John? <laughs> may, may I say what's great about this show is that its irony cuts in many directions. So that given that you're doing the fantasy alternative reality in which Trump loses and the person you wanted to win wins, most other shows would just make a series of jokes about that and about Trump. Whereas, in fact, I don't think there's a single joke about Trump in the entire episode. The meanest joke in the entire thing, I won't give it away, is about the Obamas. In, in fact, there's a very, a very great crack about the Obamas in it. And that what it's all about is getting what you want. And you've made history in the way you think you wanted to make history. And then all sorts of things that you care about aren't being taken care of. And that things boomerang so that in, in, the, in the broadest thing, she has to work basically on behalf of Harvey Weinstein, who from the earlier seasons, she knows is Harvey Weinstein, the sexual, the sexual predator we know him to be. The, the irony is so wonderful. And this is one of the things about this show is that all the way through the series, nothing is ever quite just one thing. Things cut in many directions all the time. And all the way, I've seen the first four episodes of the new season. I'm a critic. I get to see, the, I get to see things a little bit in advance. And you think, oh, wow, this is going to be about this. And it is about that. But then it spins off in other directions. And the point of the thing isn't quite what you think the point is going to be. Uh, let's talk for a little bit about the actors on this who are so wonderful. First of all, the central character is a woman of a certain age, and she's not a grandmother. She's not a wise old lady who's lovable, but, uh, you know, a uh, secondary figure. About the Baranski character... You know, she's in her 60s in real life. She's playing a sexual woman who microdoses, who's politically involved, and isn't any of the cliches of a person of that age, which is, which is, which is wonderful to see. We've been talking about The Good Fight on CBS All Access. There's 30 episodes, more than 30 episodes, 32 episodes out there right now uh, that we strongly recommend. Maybe the best show it's ever been about life in the Trump years. There's another show we want to recommend, something completely different. It's a French spy series called The Bureau. Last year you had to pay for it, but now it's free on Sundance Now. 
all four seasons, there's 40 episodes right now. Tell us about the Bureau on Sundance Now. Yes. Well, the, the Bureau basically deals with, with a group of French secret agents. The Bureau de- more or less handles the people who get sent out under fake names to, to, to work as agents in other countries. The show is based in Paris and begins where one of their great secret agents, a guy named Malachou, played by the actor Matthew Kasovitz, who's, who's really great, and he's kind of the super brilliant agent, has been called back in. And the next 40 episodes, I think, more or less follow from the consequences of bringing Malotrou back into the office. And what you get is essentially probably a, a French version of a John le Carré thing, where you have events and acts you know, and people going abroad and doing secret agent stuff. But a huge amount of the show has to do with inter-office politics, the interactions of the people working behind the scenes, the day-to-day life, how things actually work inside a spy agency as, as distinct from people just out there spying, like say James Bond or something. The, the show centers on the office and then shoots out and you deal along the way with things that, you know, that are, I think are different for Americans because the French sense of their foreign power, that it will be North Africa where you'll have a story. I mean, there will be Russia, but, but there's also the Middle East where the, where the French occupy a different position than the United States or Britain. They're fascinated with those stories. And so, as I say, you get ISIS, you get, Rus- you get Russian computer people, you get North African secret police, and you get all of that. But meanwhile, back at home, you have all the people jockeying for power. You, you, ha- you have the people searching to try to tr- track down traitors. And then you have the figure of Malotru, who in fact is the genius agent, but is a kind of a rogue because in a classic French fashion, much of the entire plot is inspired because he's madly in love with a woman and wants to save her. And so there's the, that core of French romance. But the detail work is great. The characters are spectacular. The spies aren't all male, which I think is an interesting thing. In some ways, the most endangered one is, 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 is the character named Marianne, who we see at different times go to both Iran and Russia as an, as an undercover agent. It's just a really great show. Probably the best thing, aside from John le Carre, about spies that I've ever seen. And, and in some of the episodes, are every bit as good as the John le Carre things like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And incredibly suspenseful and shot in incredibly interesting and far away places. You wonder, what did they do for Iraq? What did they do for the Syrian civil war with the Kurdish fighters? A fantastic segment. The suspense is incredible and, and the settings are fascinating. Oh yeah, the sense person, and it do, and it does the stuff which you really want in a show, which is it gives you all that interesting historical stuff, and yet you are interested in and care about the characters, who are all beautifully acted. You know, I mean, the French bench of good character actors is astonishingly deep if you watch French movies, and there are people that you've seen in French movies turning up here with slightly bigger roles because it's television, and every single one of them is really, really great. And you worry about what's going to happen to the people, which is, which is wonderful. People you like die along the way, which is part of what makes it a good show. You know, they don't all live forever. So you, ha- you have to worry because people do die on the show because it's a dangerous job. And, and it shows you French imperialism at work as well. Their sense of entitlement in doing the stuff is, you know, their version of what the Brits had and what we have. Anything else you can recommend to fill all those hours at home waiting for the all clear signal to sound? 
Yes, well, there's, there's a book I would like to plug a little bit. Um, it, it's, it's a book called Please. Made in Saturn by a Dominican musician and famous queer activist, I guess, named Rita Indiana. And what it's about is, it's, it, and the story, it's a novel called Made in Saturn, and it's about a drug-addicted artist from, from the Dominican Republic who gets sent for a cure to Cuba. Which sounds like the worst thing ever. When, you know, when I got sent the galley, I thought I wouldn't li- read this book if I lived forever. And then I started reading it, and it's a very witty, smart, sympathetic portrait of what it's like to grow up as the children of revolutions when the revolutions have curdled and, in fact, they are no longer idealistic. So it's about both the Dominican Republic and Cuba. And it's sympathetic from the inside, but it actually takes you inside what it's like to grow up in those places as the child of someone whose father was a revolutionary, but is now powerful in the government. It's witty, it's smart, it's touching. Rita Indiana is a really, really good writer, as well as being a pop star and, you know, famous. She's known in in the Dominican Republic as La Monstra, the monster. But in fact, she writes incredibly well. It's, it's from a small press called And Other Stories. And I think it would have gotten attention, but I think so much of the world has been taken over by coronavirus that to be a small press book, no matter how good, from a Dominican writer means that you won't have any hope. Our audience is the perfect audience for this because it really is about dealing with, with the results of revolutions and revolutionary desire and living with it. So to review, we've been talking about The Good Fight on CBS All Access, more than 30 episodes there, The Bureau on Sundance Now, 40 episodes, and the novel Made in Saturn by Rita Indiana. This has been news you can use from the Nation Magazine podcast, Start Making Sense. John Powers, thanks for all your help. Always a pleasure, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.